0: You're listening to an event from the U.S. Institute of Peace, part of the USIP podcast network. For more information about our work around the world, visit usip.org and check us out on social media. Good morning, everybody, and good afternoon and good evening to those of you joining us from further afield online. Uh, Welcome to USIP. My name is Lucy Kurtzer Ellenbogen. I direct our Institute's program on Israel, the Palestinian territories and the region. And it's truly my pleasure to welcome you here today and also for us to be able to bring you this important conversation on the game-changing potential of water in the Israeli-Palestinian conflict and indeed beyond more broadly in the Middle East. We have three truly exemplary speakers to talk us through this subject today. Yana Abutalib, Nada Majdalani, and Gidon Bromberg, who respectively are the uh, Jordanian, Palestinian, and Israeli co-directors of Echo Peace Middle East. Uh, Echo Peace is an organization that brings Jordanians, Palestinians, and Israelis together to cooperate around shared solutions to environmental challenges that don't respect borders or politics, as we well know. Uh, ECHO Peace was, I should note, recently awarded a uh, MEPA Middle East Partnership for Peace Act grant administered by USAID enabling their ongoing work addressing war security in the West Bank, Gaza and Israel using dual track scientific and grassroots approaches. I think it's really fitting that we're having this conversation today. Uh, It's notable we're a week out from the White House releasing its national security strategy where it named climate change as an existential shared global problem and called for global cooperation around such challenges. We're also, I think, about two weeks out from the UN's COP27 climate change conflict, which is going to bring leaders from around the world to to get together to discuss these shared challenges in uh, Gidon, Nader's, and Yana's neighboring Egypt. We are also uh, a week out of, signing, of seeing the signing of a maritime boundary agreement between uh, Israel and Lebanon, and perhaps that's something we can get into as well in terms of what that says about uh, <coughs> clean energy reserves and the potential for broader regional movement in this regard. Um, in the most water-scarce region in the world, where the collision of climate and conflict conspire towards potential catastrophe, Gidan, Nada, and Jana work every day to change that paradigm so that a shared problem can open the door to mutual benefit, confidence building and perhaps conflict uh, mitigation momentum. And so while 90 minutes is really too short a time to do comprehensive justice to all that we could discuss today, I have great confidence that with the speakers we have, we can get pretty close. So what I'd like to do is dive into a conversation among us up here. We will then open uh, to questions from our online and in-person audience, um, and we're looking forward to the discussion. Um, Jana, I'd like to ask you to start us off. Um, If you could, Describe ECHO PIECE's approach, essentially the what, 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 how, and why of the work that you do, how you operate, and the challenges surrounding water in your region.
1: Well, good morning, everyone, and thank you very much, Lucy, and a special thank you to the entire USIP team for hosting us. It's such a pleasure uh, to be here, and once again, um, talk about our work and gain more support that is needed Um, for our work, especially in a region like ours um, that is torn with conflict, but also now um, with the climate change um, um, disaster that we're seeing um, affecting every uh, resource um, in our region. So I'd like to always begin um, describing EcoPeace by saying we are unique. Um, trilateral um, environmental peace-building organization with one objective, to really bring together Jordanian, Israelis, and Palestinians to protect our shared environment and to achieve sustainable development and a fair share of equitable sharing of our limited resources between our people and between people and nature. How do we do this? As a group of uh, having offices in the three countries, we work in two ways. We have, we work with a top-down approach, meaning we aim at policy change. Trying to work with the governments of our regions, with the authorities, of each of our countries that are responsible for the different sectors we focus on, the water, energy, and food, because we're always working on creating that nexus between water, energy, and uh, and food. So, but how do we change policy? So we work with our respective authorities by preparing the necessary research and data to be able to influence policy change. The second approach that we work with is our grassroots, us being a grassroots organization, meaning we exist in communities around um, our shared resources, especially um, in the Jordan River, which is a lower part of the Jordan River, which is shared between Jordan, Israel, Palestine, Um, but we also have bilateral work um, between Israeli and Palestinian communities focusing on the mountain aquifer and the coastal aquifer shared between uh, Gaza and and Israel. Um, So we're there in communities trying to build constituencies in those communities. We work with different stakeholders in those communities, the municipalities, um, different people, Um, um, in the communities, um, from farmers, um, in the rural areas, all the way to uh, private sector, um, but also educators. We empower them with the necessary information that they need to put pressure on their decision makers, and then to make effect on the centralized authorities um, in our different capitals in three countries. And making that linkage between the people on ground and the policymakers is important and enabled us to achieve um, lots of um, on ground implementation of the needed projects.
0: Thank you, and I know we're going to talk more about some of these concrete projects um, a a little later in the conversation. If I can uh, turn to you, Nader, I know you all, when you talk about your work, you often discuss this concept of healthy interdependencies. Uh, I wonder if you could say a little bit more about that, what you mean by that, what that looks like, and why this particular area, the Israeli, Jordanian, Palestinian, is sort of ripe and fertile for that kind of
2: cooperation, to your minds. Um, indeed when we discuss uh, healthy interdependencies it means that we recognize clearly the interconnectedness of our environment and uh, natural resources Uh, we look at ourselves as one set as people who are in the same boat uh, sharing natural resources sharing uh, environmental concerns um, which And these natural resources, especially water, are very limited in our region, considering that it's one of the most arid regions uh, in, in the world. Um, political borders in that context do not ing- exist. Uh, political borders will not recognize climate change and will not recognize pollution. And I've come across this concept when I was very even um, little when I was a teenager during the Oslo Accords when I was put to understand the concept of environment knows no boundaries. And this was exactly the type of work that we are still doing today as EcoPeace with our youth um, to understand that we are dependent um, on each other to survive and to protect our shared environmental heritage. And this happens on several layers of interaction. And as Jana mentioned, it starts with interdependencies, um, emphasizing interdependencies at the uh, educational level and uh, communication with our constituencies and raising their awareness. But it also comes into different other practices that we bring on board through our Green-Blue Deal in terms of uh, bringing out-of-the-box ideas. Uh, For example, uh, we are working on one specific aspect of our green-blue deal for the Middle East, which is exchanging water and renewable energy uh, between Palestine and Israel and Jordan. And the concept is based on creating healthy interdependencies that would create uh, stability uh, and water and energy security for all in light of climate change. And uh, this creates um, somehow an understanding that we all need to provide uh, something, uh, and in return, everyone has a shared responsibility uh, to implement projects on ground that would um, make sure that uh, we have appropriate climate adaptation and mitigation measures. And our concept of exchanging water and energy where Jordan has the vast majorities of land to produce solar energy, um, that is is enough to produce 20% of almost the demand of the three countries for energy supply. In exchange on the Palestinian and Israeli side, we have the Mediterranean Sea, which can be utilized for desalination. And here we can exchange those two resources where they're much needed for Palestinians and Israelis and, and Jordanians, sorry, to have the equitable amounts of water that are needed for, uh, uh, for Israel is to increase its energy supply from clean, clean sources and to meet their Paris um, uh, Agreement uh, um, uh, yeah, uh, targets. And here we create win-win situations, which are, very much necessary to accommodate ourselves to what comes next in terms of climate impact. And as I mentioned, we are all in the same boat, uh, and I always use the metaphor of the Titanic. Um, It doesn't matter who is advanced in technology and uh, adaptation measures and who's uh, system is so fragile because at the same time when we are inter- so interconnected geographically and environmentally and resource-wise, the Titanic will sink anyways if the iceberg hits, whether you're on the uh, luxury first class or in the bottom of the ship. Everyone will sink if we don't cooperate to you know, uh, drift together in the lifeboats. Um, or, and, steer or, st- or steer away from the <laughs> iceberg. Oh steer away from the iceberg. So here's our concept that requires, again, a lot of education on interdependency on ground, but as well um, on, the, um, on the level of bringing out there concepts uh, that would push, really, our leadership to understand uh, that we need to work together.
0: Thank you. I mean, as, and as you've noted, um, th- this concept that, that these challenges and these crises don't respect borders or politics. Of course, I'm quite sure, and as we know, those borders and politics do tend to get uh, in the way. And you mentioned, you referenced uh, when you were younger and 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 the Oslo Accords. And I wanted to circle back to some of um, what you've mentioned later in the conversation, but pick up on the Oslo Accords and turn to you. Gidon because we are, I think, September marks the 30th anniversary since the signing of those accords. Um, and, you know, which held out the promise of, of, and potential of, a, of an unrealized, to this day, two-state solution, but also were notable, among other things, for codifying water as a, as a sort of core issue of the conflict to also be resolved. Um, and I, I think that you know, recognizing the importance of water in the context of peace was important, but I know you've discussed before the, the concept also that, that also held water hostage to the resolution of the conflict. Um, has anything changed? I know there are factors you often point to about how that paradigm of zero sum um, around water has changed. What are the factors that now make a, a different way of thinking about this
3: possible? So also let me uh, thank, uh, thank you, Lucy, and, and the, whole, the whole team of USAP for this invitation. Um, when the Oslo Accords were negotiated in 93, 94, 94, 95, uh, water was only natural water. Water was very much a scarce and finite resource. There was the shared groundwater um, of the coastal aquifer between Israel and Gaza, the shared groundwater between Israel and the West Bank, um, the Jordan River system uh, and the Dead Sea uh, uh, shared with Israel, Palestine, and Jordan. Um, And therefore, solving water issues, particularly between Israelis and Palestinians, was difficult because it was a zero-sum game. Mm -hmm. It was very clear, more water must be transferred to the Palestinian side as part of an agreement. But the transfer of, of of that water, when there's a uh, a limited sort of tub, um, uh, produces winners and losers. And therefore, water was put aside, was recognized as critically important, but difficult to solve. And therefore, together with other difficult issues, Jerusalem, refugees, and so forth, the idea was that within five years, a deal would be struck. And from our conversations with the negotiators at the time, Perhaps the idea was that Israel would be so-called generous on water, and Palestine would be so-called generous on refugees, and a deal would be struck in that way. Well, the rationale as to why water was difficult to solve, 30 years later, doesn't exist anymore. And that's largely due to Israeli leadership in the water sector, both in desalination, where today 70% 70% of the water that Israelis drink is no longer coming from natural water sources. 70% is coming from desalination. And it's projected it will increase to over 90% in the short term. And in addition to that, Israel is the world leader in treating sewerage and then reusing it for agriculture. Um, that's more water today being produced by recognizing that sewerage is a resource than the amount, than the quantity of water that, that Israel ever had extracted from the Sea of Galilee. So the water pie has tremendously increased um, yet on the ground when it comes to the fair share of, of water between Israeli uh, Israelis and Palestinians there's been no movement and one of our concerns is that Uh, uh, policy makers in our own region but also internationally seem to be fixated on the principle of we must agree, we must solve all five final status issues together or we don't move forward on anything. Of course all of us would have loved to see movement on all five final status issues yesterday, but 30 years down the track um, what we've identified at Ecopiece is in fact We're holding this zero-sum game, this all-or-nothing approach is in fact holding water issues hostage. What does that mean? It means that there remains intermittent water supply throughout the West Bank and Gaza. There doesn't need to be. We can today, much due to Israel's leadership on the one hand on uh, 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 expanding the water pie, Palestinians, we can negotiate and Palestinians can get a fairer share of the natural water with no reduction in water available to Israelis because we can increase desalination and we are continuing to do that and and to treat sewage, so that we no longer have a lose-win situation. We can advance on a win-win situation and today more than ever that's critical. Because that's, the, that's a way to improve the situation on the ground for every Palestinian, and equally for every Israeli, because there are sanitation issues between Israeli, Israelis and Palestinians that are not being dealt with properly. And both Palestinians and Israelis suffer from raw sewage flowing down almost every shared stream. So there's another deal, a much more pertinent deal, certainly with the climate crisis, because when we put put ourselves in the context that the climate crisis is further declining the amount of natural water that we have, that's what the Palestinians have access to, that's actually in further decline. So that we have the opportunity, and that's the call of Echo Peace, to move forward. We sort of call it water first, not because we want to... Uh, uh, prevent all of the other critical issues from moving forward, but by moving water issues forward now, we can build. Tr- we can improve the reality on the ground. More water in every Palestinian home. Sewerage being treated not only for Israelis but also for Palestinians. Build trust. Show that we can move forward. Reach a. an agreement on a critical final status issues, highlight that we have a partner for peace.
0: So in other words, it has a dual purpose. One is improving access to water, which is necessary, but you see it also as having the potential to to, to grease the wheels or provide some momentum towards progress on other tracks perhaps, given the trust deficit that exists between the leaders right now. Mm
3: -hmm. And identifying the urgency, because perhaps all of us, Perhaps many of the decision-makers, we don't, but many of the decision-makers don't see the urgency in moving forward on the peace process. Mm -hmm. On the climate crisis, we fail to move forward on these issues. It's to the detriment of all three of us, and as Nada's metaphor highlights, it's exactly why we're on the Titanic together. Failing to move forward on water mitigation issues is a lose-lose now. To all three peoples.
1: Yeah, and if I may just add, um, Lucy, um, but it's also a national security issue. So, water is a very important um, resource um, for each of our countries, and it's seen by each of our countries as a national security issue. What good is a neighbor that is not secure in its water resources? So, that's more the reason that we really need to be working. On solving, especially water issues.
0: Yeah, no, and it's an important point. As I mentioned at the top, it's interesting that this certainly climate environment challenges appeared in in the, the U.S. national security strategy that was released last week by the administration. So this is a language we're increasingly uh, hearing being used around the issues. If if I um, can, you mention, Gidon. You talked about. Um, treated sewage and the challenges and and again the the lose-lose that you see when these issues aren't addressed and the win-win possibilities. I always find stories tend to be the most effective way to underscore what this looks like in reality. And For me, one of the most powerful stories that, that really brought home to me the impact and potential of what you all do, was a, it was a Reuters story or a headline also that appeared in Times of Israel back in June uh, of this past year about um, the, the sea in Gaza being swimmable in again for the first time in a while. Um, could you actually, Nadia, if I could ask you to talk about what that story referred to the, and, and, and how that how that came about, how you identified that challenge and, and,
2: and what leading towards the solution looked like? Um, again, this really exemplifies our interdependency and interconnectedness in terms of our resources. Uh, the Gaza story is really compelling and it shows that... Um, our way of doing things can really be effective uh, to change course of, of lives and to change course of how things need to be done and understood. Um, for several years, and because of the 15, 16 years of blockade uh, on Gaza um, and, and, and borders, and there's this dual-use material that... Um, the Israeli military has identified as dangerous material to enter Gaza as not to be used for um, constructing tunnels or utilized for making um, non conventional weapons, etc. Um, this was an, an, also an excuse to. Uh, not enter several kinds of materials that are necessary for building wastewater treatment plants and uh, water facilities in Gaza Strip. Um, and one of the major uh, projects that has been impeded for a long time, for nearly 12, 13 years, was a World Bank project in the north of Gaza, which is a major wastewater treatment plant to serve several communities. Um, This is nearly around the border, and sewage was literally for many years uh, going, uh, uh, put into the Mediterranean Sea untreated, and the currents take it north, polluting the beaches in Israel, um, and... Causing the closure of major desalination plants, and one of them is the Ashkelon desalination plant in Israel, which literally provides around 70% of the water.
3: Ashkelon 15%.
2: After Ashkelon 15% of the uh, of the water um, uh, of drinking water to to Israeli people in the area. So. And we came this information. To, we came to this information all by coincidence because we were looking for polio um, in the sam- we, we were taking be- beaches uh, samples from the beaches in Israel to detect polio, and by coincidence, the same laboratory that we were testing in told us that they have been testing for um, uh, fecal coliform and other pollutants in the Mediterranean for Ashkelon and it has been closed several times and threatening the water security of, uh, of Israel uh, by, by stopping operation. So what does this tell us? That at that point, the uh, Israeli military um, decision was similar to shooting themselves in the foot because the conventional security meaning uh, has nothing to do with what the environment has to deal with things and how environment understands its natural way of of doing things. Um, What we did was we've mobilized people on ground through the uh, office of Tel Aviv, around the communities of Gaza. They've signed um, a letter addressing the prime minister back then uh, Netanyahu to take action that whatever is called the iron Doom uh, any protective conventional security measures are not effective because it is turning back around into uh, also affecting Israel's uh, um, uh, water security and by by lots of also advocacy on uh, on, on the policy-making level, we started seeing some relaxation uh, to, um, to, to, uh, to enter material for water and sanitation uh, construction in Gaza. And since 2018 until today, uh, around three uh, major wastewater treatment plants in Gaza Strip have been completed and constructed. So this is the way forward. It takes... A lot of work on several layers to build the understanding that whatever goes around comes around (laughs) and that we need to really think of the repercussions of our decisions if we don't work together and facilitate things that would impact our lives collectively.
3: I would add that military security is is a legitimate concern but military security is not the only security. And, and that's what Ecopiece was really able to successfully communicate, first and foremost, to the Israeli residents around Gaza and, and, and of course, to the decision makers. that water security and environment security and health security, they're also legitimate concerns. And decision makers have to balance. We can't keep our head in the sand. There's There's broader human security, and when we understand human security, then we understand we're in the same boat. And that's really what led to those policy changes and perhaps the first good news to come out of Gaza in a decade around water. That's the power of water.
2: Because the beach became, sorry, go ahead. Yeah, and and to add to this point and to what Yana mentioned, that water is actually a national security matter. Is that we, if it's not something that we say, it's something that has internationally been recognized. It has been put into literature by several international uh, security agencies and military agencies, by NATO, by CIA. The experience of the refugees uh, of, of Syria flooding into Europe, this is one major issue that. Has come out of of, of water scarcity and uh, and uh, not managing well with climate change issues, so um, it it now is globally recognized this interconnectedness between security and water security, um, and most of the non secure uh, violence breakouts uh, in the world are also recognized as water-scarce areas in the world. And this is typically the MENA region. So that's why we need to start uh, also recognizing this issue. And quoting here also our water minister uh, at one of the um, donors' meetings in Brussels, he mentioned that if we don't solve water problems in Gaza today for 2 million people, Europe will start seeing floodings of refugees from Gaza to Cyprus and Europe very soon. And the, the, the history will repeat itself, such as the, the stories of Syria refugees, etc. cetera.
0: Yeah. Can you, and you um, Nada and Yana in particular, you've, you've, you've talked about the way uh, eco-peace works top-down, and this was an example as well, very much engaging policymakers around this, but also bottom-up. Could you say in relation to whether it's this example or others, a little bit about what that bottom-up component looks like? There's obviously a policy change that has to happen, but presumably around these issues as well, there's, there's an education component, a public education component, about use of water and, 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 and effectively uh, dealing with your natural environment. What does that work look like, either in this particular example or more broadly? Um, I can, Jana, I don't know if I can ask you to start, but is yeah. any of you weigh in? Oh, definitely,
1: so education is very important and working as, um, with the local communities and educating them about um, the challenges, the, uh, the water realities, um, is important. But it's more effective the way we do it at EcoPeace when we are working with the local communities and the people in the local communities, we have them become part of identifying those challenges. Mm -hmm. So we literally, um, um, for example, when we're doing um, um, a project on the Jordanian side of the Jordan Valley, we take people to the sites to see with their own eyes what the challenges are so that they could become part of identifying the challenges. But then we work heavily with them on educating them and having them part of doing the research Mm -hmm. so that they're part of identifying the solution as well. Only then they're able to really discuss and present the problem and the solutions to the decision maker. And for a concrete example, when we first started working on the Jordanian side, um, with the Jordanian, you know, different stakeholders, the farmers, the educators, the municipalities, the mayors in the municipalities, and we were talking about the Jordan River and um, the pollution in the Jordan River. Everyone was just telling us, why are you talking to us about this? We Jordanians don't have a say, or we're not taking any of the water from the Jordan River, and we're not polluting the river. But by taking them on site visits mm-hmm. to see the different um, uh, realities in the communities when it comes to treatment and, uh, of the sewage in the communities, they were able to see with their own eyes that it's not only Israel to blame, but it's us that are contributing to the pollution of the rivers, of the river, because we do not have sanitation solution. People in the Jordan Valley, on the Jordanian side, are dependent on cesspits. And they are poor people in the communities there. So they're either unable to, um, to pump the, sewage, uh, uh, the, uh, the cesspits, yeah. or they're old and cracked, so they seep into the groundwater, also polluting our groundwater. But they were able to see that with their own eyes, which made all the difference. And for them to understand and go to their mayors and say, these are the things that we demand from you. We need you to go to our central government, to the responsible authorities, to to really create um, solutions for the san- for sanitation in the Jordan Valley.
0: It's very it's a very powerful example of watching how that sort of top down and bottom up meet meet each other and connect with each other. Um, and and I, I think that staying on the Jordan. Uh, the Jordan River Valley. Um, I know that's an area that you've worked on for a long time and with mayors, as you've just mentioned, as part of that, um, your Good Water Neighbors project. But one of the things I've always found um, compelling, you've pointed out um, often that the Jordan River Valley, it's important geographically, environmentally, it's also an important place in terms of shared cultural and religious significance for many people. How do you, why is it that you talk about that? What does that look like in terms of integrating that concept into your work?
3: So so the Jordan River is a holy river to the three Abrahamic traditions, to Christians, to Muslims, and to Jews. Yet we, the Abrahamic people, those of you that haven't seen the Jordan south of the Sea of Galilee, you'd be shocked as to what you would see today. 95% 95% of the fresh water has been diverted. What's left is mostly sewerage, mostly untreated, agricultural runoff, saline water. A very unholy combination that actually threatens people's health if they're baptized in the river today. So. You know, that, that is unacceptable and, and, and Echo Peace has been focusing for most of our near three decades of, of, of work to rehabilitate the river and, and by, as, as, as Jana said, by bringing local communities, local residents. Why do we have to bring local residents down to the river? Because the river is the border, there are checkpoints, there are fences, it's mined, People generally do not come to the border. They're fearful of the border. And therefore the demise of the river is out of sight, out of mind. So our programming in the Good Water Neighbors brings the communities on the Israeli side, on the Jordanian side, on the Palestinian side, to look at that demise of the river and to understand, as Jana said, that we all have a responsibility here. Not the same responsibility, but we all have something. We can continue blaming and only blaming, or we can start to take some responsibility for the actions that we're responsible for. And a key aspect of that is the faith-based communities. Mm -hmm. And we were able to bring uh, uh, priests and imams and rabbis from our own communities, and then later from the broader international community to speak out, first of all, to see the demise and that's mind-boggling. We invite you all to come down with us to the Jordan Valley. Um, and then you know, the, the faith-based leadership have actually signed onto a covenant together calling for the rehabilitation of the river. Um, a critical aspect is the mayors. Um, my favorite photo is the mayors of the Jordan River, Palestinian, Jordanian, and Israeli. It's not a pretty sight, there are some big bellies. They're in their trunks, and they're jumping into a clean stretch of the Jordan River together. They're making a splash. Now, they're doing that not because they're best friends. They're not. Animosity and conflict continues. I think this is the importance of what environmental peace building We're here at USIP. This is not a development issue, and, and if you think that conflict resolution is, all, is only about putting building sanitation facilities, or putting pipes, then you're missing the point. It's about uh, uh, understanding that we're in the same boat, that we can't clean up the river unless we all clean. It's a shared river, for goodness sake. If we don't all get the sewerage out, then we've actually done nothing. And perhaps you know, uh, this... Um, just several months ago uh, uh, to show how this type of work, faith-based work, community work, youth work, mayors, the government of Israel, this, 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 uh, uh, this present government, passed a cabinet decision that I think is truly historic. For it's still only the first stretch, the first 11 kilometers of the river between the Sea of Galilee to the Yarmouk, which is the border with Jordan. Um, there is now a cabinet decision to rehabilitate that stretch, remove all of the sewerage. In fact, our workers already brought in about $100 million of investments, not our money. It's the money of the US government, of European governments. But those investments wouldn't have happened without the peace building. But, but now, with, with this new cabinet decision, 50 million cubic meters of water will start to flow down the Jordan River. But here's the catch. We don't rehabilitate the river without working altogether. So the government of Israel will put the water back in a pipe 11 kilometers further down until we can really move forward on regional cooperation for the whole length of the river. And the cabinet decision calls for regional cooperation to rehabilitate the river. So we have an opportunity today. All of us have an opportunity today. Because this is not our river. This is all of our rivers. This is the most important river in our our mind, and I think in most people's mind. This is a river that belongs to us all. And by rehabilitating the river, we make such a powerful statement. So we ask you to join us. In that effort to to expand that uh, cooperation for the full length of the Jordan River, all the way down to the Dead Sea.
0: So, and you mentioned a couple of times in that answer, regional operation the need for that around that, and so I'd like to, if we can zoom out on that, and we have a couple of questions as well on that issue from our online audience. Um, specifically, and a couple of pieces you've touched on already, uh, Yano and Nada, Nada, you referenced before the, um, the water energy exchange agreement um, of November 2021, I believe, um, between Israel and Jordan uh, facilitated by and funded by the UAE. And of course, that wouldn't have come about without the advent of the Abraham Accords. Um, now, I know that um, you've been working for years on this notion, you've mentioned it, Gidon, of water energy exchanges, ideally, ultimately between Israel, Jordan, and Palestine. This agreement so far is Israel Jordan Emirati involvement agreement. Um, can you um, maybe, Jana? Uh, I'll ask you uh, to start on that. What are um, what are some options for the uh, for the future on that agreement? Where do you see the future of that potential involvement, maybe of the Palestinians in that agreement down the line, and what more potential can be unlocked from this uh, geopolitical development of the Abraham Accords and the Negev Forum in this space?
1: Well, thank you, Lucy. Very important question. I mean. Uh definitely this letter of intent that was signed between the Jordanians um, and Israelis facilitated by um, Emiratis and the US involvement as well is an important first step. But it wasn't only triggered um, by, um, or enabled by the signing of the Abraham Accords, it was enabled because of the urgency of climate change. Mm -hmm. And that's how we were able to move it forward as well. By, putting together our Green Blue Deal report and touching upon the four different components. One of them is the Green Blue Deal, uh, I mean, sorry, the Water Energy Nexus, which we produced a pre-feasibility study for back in 2015. Um, But this is an important first step, like I said. Um, Our vision as an organization is to, that all three countries cooperate on this and that it would be a learning point but other countries in the region to join on cooperation on uh, to be climate change resilience, um, basically. Um, our What we're focusing on at this time is also to show that this is an opening for the Palestinians as well. So something that we're uh, trying to move forward is more solar energy in Area C uh, for Palestinians to be wheeled up to, op- to Gaza to operate the existing treatment plants, uh, wastewater treatment plants, and the desalination plants that Nada was talking about. Mm-hmm. So this is something that um, hopefully is, is moving forward and we'll be able to, uh, with the support of the international community, to push forward for. But the way we work as an organization is that we look at pragmatic solutions. We look at what opportunities are there. So some of the recent concept notes that we're trying to push forward is that opportunity um, to, uh, to include a mandate for the um, Mediterranean Gas Forum that they would also focus on climate change and renewable energy. Another concept, building on um, what we see of signing of a letter of intent between the Israelis and Jordanians uh, uh, for exchange of renewable energy for water, is for Jordan to become um, a hub for producing solar cells to enable Jordan to be able to, or manufacturing of solar cells, to be able to produce all the needed renewable energy in our region. But also looking at the um, Ukraine-Russia war Mm -hmm. and the need for gas and and all the challenges that created and thinking of climate change and the opportunities we have in our region, we're also looking at moving forward that our region could be a hub for producing renewable energy and um, um, green hydrogen as well to be uh, uh, shared and between our region first of all, but then also exported to Europe.
0: Very interesting. And, and the, the, if you could um, just say, why is Jordan, why is Jordan uh, such a prime candidate for playing this role when it comes to solar energy? If we could just talk about what, what, what makes that the case, geographically speaking. Well, first of all, um,
1: as Jordan, when we did our pre-feasibility study, it was proven by the research that we did that Jordan um, has vast areas of desert that are ecologically not significant and that can be be used to produce all this renewable energy. Um, But then as Jordanian government, it's within our energy strategy to be uh, uh, increasing the mix of renewables as well. Uh, in our production and to also become a hub Mm -hmm. to export renewable energy to the nearby countries. Um, So all those elements are enabling elements. Um, In addition to that, we have a God gift of being, you know, um, uh, I think the best country in the area um, in terms of sun radiation. Um, So we're able to to produce a lot of Um, solar energy.
0: Um, I have another question from one of our viewers online. Uh, Bruce online is asking if one of you can speak to the sustainability of desalination and energy use, any secondary impacts or byproducts of that? So I don't know who would like to take that.
3: I'd be very happy to take that. So desalination should always be the last choice, not the first choice. We need to make sure that we manage the natural water resources that we have as best and efficiently as we can. That means that the price of water needs to be right. You know, desert area where we live, water should be metered, water should not be free, water should reflect its scarcity. And that's sadly not not always the case. We should be treating our wastewater um, and then reusing that. And, and, And when we get the price right for water, then a whole lot of technologies can be employed to even further increase efficiency. But what's happened to our part of the world is that we're doing most of that. Certainly Israel is is a world leader when it comes to water efficiency today, perhaps the world leader, Um, and there's now no other choice. So desalination should never be seen as something just to jump into. No, it's only when you've achieved everything else and you still don't have enough water resources, then desalination is um, an effective option, and and that's what's happened in Israel. Um, Yet, nevertheless, the energy uh, needed for desalination is intensive, and that's why the water energy exchange, Mm -hmm. uh, the the purchase of renewables from Jordan is so attractive, uh, because it enables desalination to move forward without that uh, uh, a footprint, without that print of, of increased emissions, because uh, they'll be powered by renewable sources. One of the issues that, that still remain is the brine. It's, it's those salts that are removed from the desalination process that are dumped into the Mediterranean. And why is that of concern? Because it's not just Israel and, and Palestine and Egypt. Um, and Lebanon. It's the whole eastern Mediterranean that's run out of water, and everyone is planning to build very large desalination plants, and at the moment everyone's going to dump that brine back into the Mediterranean. If we don't invest in new technologies of how to utilize that brine rather than dumping that brine into the Mediterranean, we'll turn the eastern Mediterranean into a dead sea. Now the exciting news is that there is there, there, there is technology being developed. Um, uh, there's technology to utilize the brine as an alternative to cement. There's technology um, potentially uh, to use the brine as a carbon capture, which further then advances us as regards to climate change. There's true cutting edge technology. It requires further investment, but it does speak to the, uh, the potential, the continued potential of a a desalination to move forward if we get the regulations in in place and if the necessary funds for further research are, are put into place to diminish the negative environmental implications. We can't ignore. Those implications.
0: And same question as, as, be, uh, as before that Yana um, was speaking to, do you see any opportunities that have new opportunities in the space given the um, development of the Abraham Accords and a greater move towards regional um, cooperation? Is there, are there new opportunities to your minds that have arisen here? Or, or barriers, further barriers to, to, to that playing that role?
1: Lucy, can I just add to what Gidon was saying about desalination? So it's important to give the example of Jordan. Um, With the water stress that we're facing in the country, um, we have no other alternative but to desalinate. And this is what we're doing as an organization, um, working with our local authorities on the Jordanian side to just make sure that the desalination is sustainable in that sense because we can't afford as a country anymore to be looking at only one option of um, um, only to purchase the additional quantities from Israel. But what we'll be purchasing from Israel would be partly desalinated water on the Mediterranean. But also, we'll also need to implement on the Jordanian side our national water carrier, which means desalination as well. But what we're always stressing on to make it sustainable As Kidon was saying, that we work with the authorities to make sure that we go into the proper reform that our water sector needs. And we take all the different measures, and then we look at what our uh, um, demand uh, in terms of water would be, and they would come from desalination.
3: And and to build on on, on the question, we need to broaden the cooperation. There's There's no question, our survival as a region is dependent on broadening the cooperation. The Green-Blue Deal that Equipeas launched from its very uh, initial thinking was not only looking at Jordan, Palestine, and Israel. We understood that the Middle East as a whole, the potential of the Abraham Accords is extremely significant. But if it doesn't include the Palestinians, then again, we're missing the boat. All partners need to move forward together, otherwise we don't move forward. That, that it continues to be a, a, a challenge that uh, uh, prevents progress on these critical issues. And, and, and the, the potential of the win-win is just so dramatic for us. We don't need to be the example to the rest of the world of tragedy and suffering and uh, a failure to be sustainable. We can be the example of shared prosperity, of, uh, of climate resilience. We can be the exporter of uh, green technologies, of solar and wind power to indeed, as, as, as Jana said uh, in a recent study, to power a third of the energy needs of Europe through renewable sources. But that's only when we work together and the call for Echo Peace is that that the decision makers that are moving forward this regional effort, we can't leave anyone behind. We have to be working with all three countries.
2: And just to add that and to steer the conversation a little bit beyond environment and a bit more political. There needs to be also an understanding that real peace and stability in the Middle East uh, for that to be achieved. Uh, Peace between Palestinians and Israelis should be prioritized. Israel will never be secure and a secure state if there is no advancement on a political solution between the Palestinians and Israelis. And no matter how Many Arab countries sign peace agreements and advance on cooperation agreements with the Israelis. It would not mean anything on the ground for every and each Israeli citizen in terms of security if peace between Palestinians and Israelis is achieved. And therefore what needs to really be advanced is to go back and discuss how can we really advance the two state solution and put it back as the one and only solution that is suitable for everyone, either Palestinians or Israelis on board. We can't really think of other alternatives which are more difficult. And the more the time is passing, the more there's time for settlements expansion and creating this Swiss cheese, as George Bush has once described in the, in, in the West Bank, of disconnected communities the more the two-state solution achievement will be difficult. Mm -hmm. So our work is to utilize and to somehow also maintain this notion that there is a real partner for peace to work on practical issues that Gida has mentioned, but also to take this forward on a longer-term vision to create peace between Israelis and Palestinians to achieve security for all.
0: Yeah, thank you, Nader, and thank you for bringing us to um, to that, um, that topic in the conversation, because the next set of questions I have uh, directed to you, and we have a couple of questions online about this as well, is if you could speak to, you know, we've talked about the opportunities, but the challenges that you've just been able to speak to and the challenges of doing this work, in the Palestinian case, uh, under occupation, um, and the challenges to moving some of these uh, issues forward. And uh, perhaps, uh, relatedly, if Anada and any of you want to talk as well, we have a question from Josie online about whether it's possible to achieve water security um, and water sovereignty for Palestinians without over-reliance on Israeli infrastructure there a place for a localized approach for Palestinian water and agricultural practices. Uh, so uh, Nada or Gidon, perhaps, if you wanted to uh, speak to some of those. And then we're going to allow our
2: uh, in-person audience as well to ask some questions. Yeah. Again, with the current nature of of how things are being done on ground and because of how we're stuck with the Oslo arrangements, any, any attempt to improve local uh, water sovereignty and access to water for Palestinians and is very mit- much bound and connected to what is called the Joint Water Committee, at which often there is, it's very challenging to get the approval uh, from the Israeli uh, side to dig new wells or develop new wells. And again, this is much connected to be, not, us not being able to reach a final agreement on the allocation of water resources. But adding to that complexity is that also around 64% of the West Bank, if we're talking about the West Bank alone, is recognized as Area C, Mm -hmm. which is an area that is fully controlled uh, in terms of civil works and military and security affairs by the Israeli military uh, or civil administration. Um, And often any water infrastructure projects, any pipes, storage tanks, wastewater treatment plants are not allowed to be developed in these 64% of the area without the approval from the Israeli civil administration. This is a huge bottleneck for the water sector in Palestine to move forward on developments. What really then needs to be done and recognized and through our work with EcoPeace is during this meantime where we're not able to reach a final agreement, where we have the status quo of the occupation and military control, we need to find mechanisms to also hold responsibility and for Israel to also hold responsibility to take on water development as a basic necessity for the people of Palestine on ground, not from their from a perspective of goodwill, but also from a perspective of of water security in Palestine is also a national security issue that is of the interest of Israel. And again, this turns us back into the issue of we are all in the same boat.
3: So we're in a lose-lose. The present situation is that there's intermittent water supply, you go to a city like Yatta, in the West Bank, south of Hebron, has water supplied by the municipality in the summertime. Once every two months, imagine living with municipal water supply at such an intermittent fashion. That it's due to the conflict. It's not due... And they
2: buy water from tanker water water tanks, and it's not sustainable. It's very highly priced. So for a family of seven, six people, they put nearly their entire household income just on water, which is around $400 a month. This is insane.
3: And on the other other side of the coin, it's about 60 million cubic meters of sewage, coming mostly from Palestinian sources that are untreated, and pollute that shared groundwater that Israel takes the lion's share of until today. We're in a lose-lose situation, what EcoPeace is proposing. We can turn that into a win-win, not only from an infrastructure perspective, but from a peace perspective. Because by enabling Palestinians not to buy more water from Israel, but to directly access groundwater, Palestinians then have a clear interest to treat sewage. When they have a clear interest to treat sewage, then Israel, Israelis too, win. And and, and that's the name of the game. It's it's identifying those win-win solutions that improve the lives of Palestinians and Israelis and meet the urgency. Because it's not as if the, the situation is status quo. The situation is that the climate crisis is at our door. The rest of the world is terrified of a one and a half degree increase in temperatures, of of further reductions in rainfall. We've already experienced close to a two degree increase in temperature. We've had 15 years of drought in the last 20 years. So time is not on our side. And our appeal to decision makers, our own, but also internationally, is that we need to move forward. And if there's one thing that can bring uh, uh, improvement on the ground that, that can build trust and that can highlight that we have a partner on each side, it's moving forward on water.
0: Thank you Gidon, I think that's a good segue point to also turn to our audience for questions. We have mic runners, uh, or we ha- uh, Caroline over here has the microphone. Um, Ambassador Youssef, uh, Senior Fellow here at USIP.
4: Well, thank you very much for a very interesting and informative discussion. Uh, Two questions. The first one is in relation to uh, separating water in the negotiations of final status issues. And whether it would be possible, in your view, to persuade the current administration in the U.S. Uh, in light of the success that have been witnessed in the maritime negotiations between Israel and Lebanon, uh, to separate win-win situations from the bigger part of the conflict. So do you think that it is possible to achieve this objective in relation to water as a confidence-building measure between uh, the Israelis and the Palestinians? Uh, The second question is in relation to uh, COP. Uh, The region has become more interested in COP. Uh, We have had one in the last few years in Morocco, this year in Egypt, uh, the following year in the United Arab Emirates, and you mentioned uh, the Abraham Accord several times. Uh, Do you think that this debate can be introduced uh, on the international stage through COP that would take place in the United Arab Emirates? Thank you. Thank you. Um, And do you
0: want to... I can gather a couple of questions and come back, or did you,
3: all right.
0: Let's take that, there were a couple of questions there, so we'll take those two questions uh, to start. Um...
3: So so I I think the example of of Israel and Lebanon, what an achievement to AMOS, uh, to the State Department, to this administration. A precedent decision that opens the door. And you're absolutely right, this is the type. So Israel and and Lebanon didn't sign a peace treaty. But they understood the time was against them, and that if they didn't move forward, not only could Lebanon fall, but the implications were clearly also on Israel and the broader region. So they, both governments took, under US leadership, under French uh, leadership here, took that brave step and moved forward, and broke the paradigm, because the paradigm for Lebanon, too, was either there's a peace treaty or there's nothing. So why can't we apply that same principle? The same urgency is there, and the climate crisis brings that urgency. So bringing it to COP, absolutely. We need these issues to come to the Sharm COP in just two weeks, but even more so because we have more time to prepare for the COP in the UAE, the Conference of the Parties on Climate, to utilize um, uh, uh, the climate issue, not just as a threat multiplier, not something that just brings fear to people's hearts, but that can bring hope to people's daily lives. And that's what moving forward on water reflects.
1: If I may just add to that um, also Lucy, I think we we do have that opportunity now uh, to influence uh, policy here in the US. Um, Not only to negotiate um, uh, water as a low-hanging fruit between the Israelis and Palestinians and build that much-needed trust between them, um, but also to take smaller steps like our work on the Jordan River and calling on our three governments to come together on signing a memorandum of understanding to prioritize projects that can move forward today that are much needed, especially on the Jordanian and Palestinian side, like sanitation, like uh, uh, um, projects related to uh, water infrastructure, also on the Jordanian-Palestinian side. For um, that um, uh, trust fund would be a World Bank-managed trust fund um, that would enable you know, donors to contribute and have these projects implemented. And like I said, there are low-hanging fruits and can move forward tomorrow because they don't need to be, um, they don't need to agree on the harder political issues of, um, um, for instance, water rights. So I think we should be working towards that.
2: And and also uh, to, to add, I think the mechanisms that we utilize to enable this to happen is, uh, is is also very effective because at the moment also with technology and advancement of modeling, we have the opportunity to argue with scientific data and modeling that negotiating of allocating water resources is possible between Palestinians and Israelis. And this is exactly now an exercise that we are conducting with Palestinians and Israeli and international hydrologists to basically optimize water resources with areas of water demand and to provide this data in the form of technical papers but also policy papers to utilize them with uh, our own governments but also with international community to facilitate this discussion.
0: Thank you. Thank you, Neda, and all of you. Um, we had another question uh, down here.
1: Hello, I'm Dorian from Transfoceanic LLC, USA. Um, in a way, I'm not, uh, I do not agree with the, tra- uh, with the Titanic uh, case. I think nowadays we have to save it, okay? We don't <laughs> let it die. Um, going back, I'll sh- tell you about a, a project that di- died 20 years ago. It was importing water from Turkey to Israel and it died because they didn't have the technology at the time. My question is simple. Do you know about the new technologies of importing long-distance water to Israel from Turkey or from other sources, that's one, and how it can be implemented
3: if you know about it? Thank you. Thank you. So, so we are familiar uh, with the different proposals of, of importing water from an example, Turkey or or, or other places. And um, the reason why that that didn't take place is because the desalination technology advanced at such speed that the cost of desalination became cheaper than, well, this this is not my research, it's the research of the Israeli Water Authority, um, that the cost of desalinating, so the cost of desalination used to be $2 a cubic meter um, the, the most modern sewage stream plant in Israel, Surek 2, is down to 40 cents a cubic meter. And the, the, even the, the, the new desalination plants being proposed will probably uh, be even cheaper. And so you know, the cost is, 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 a, is, a, is, a, is a real issue. And there's issues that everyone wants to be producing. Um, you know, uh, uh, their water locally or as locally as possible. So, um, you know, this has uh, nothing to do with ecopiece. The government of Israel and the water authority in Israel decided not to move forward on importing water from Turkey and invested in the desalination. And what we're seeing, particularly in the water energy exchange, is how this can be a game changer. And I think that's the key, because it's not an issue of development. It's not an issue of building, you know, uh, laying pipes and, 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 and moving water necessarily. It's about creating healthy interdependencies where each side, our conflict is between Israelis, Palestinians, Jordanians, we're for the very first time creating a mechanism where every side has something to buy and every side has something to sell. That's, if that sounds familiar, it should remind you of the coal and steel agreement of Europe after World War II. That's how you, that's how the U.S. helped build the most lasting period of peace in the European continent, sort of known. It was about creating that healthy interdependency between coal and steel. Well, what we're doing through the Green Blue Deal is about creating that healthy interdependency by harnessing the sun and harnessing the sea in a way that each one of us have something of real value to contribute. So let's build on that. And let's include the broader region, including Turkey, um, uh, in, the, in, in, in that effort. But it's about creating healthy interdependencies.
0: Gidan, I'm going to, um, I'm going to stay with you a second because you, you almost mind-read the, the next question, which is another um, question uh, from one of our online audience. Um, and one that I've had, and we love to ask at USAP, the sort of com- how, we can, how can we can look at the comparative context here? And um, how do you compare and contrast the Middle East context? with other regions in the world and where this offers possibilities. You just spoke to Europe as an example in the other direction, but where do you see possibilities um, for expanding this kind of work beyond the Middle East context? And do you, all, do you ever find yourself contacted by other either parallel organizations or others in um, you know, Africa, elsewhere in Asia who
2: are, who are wanting to or see that there's something to learn from this example? Um, certainly, we've uh, we've worked for several years with uh, Bosnia and Herzegovina, uh, where we have trained uh, NGOs uh, on uh, local NGOs in that area to adopt our methodology. Uh, similarly, we have uh, been working with NGOs around the Lake Chad uh, on on also. Uh, learning our methodology the top down approach bottom up approach uh, and and we we certainly don't want to add more
3: <laughs> work we have enough to do <laughs>
2: we've enough to do in our own region um, we are around 55 staff uh, to 60 staff maximum in all three in, in the three offices across the board so um, with this little number of 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 uh, people, the level of effort is more than enough to do things on ground in our own uh, countries. Uh, But certainly we look into striking partnerships with organizations and think tanks and NGOs and collaborating with with USIP uh, and being here for this week actually opens really good doors of, of thinking outside the box on how to transfer this experience from our region and more broadly to other regions of the world. Um, so thank you again. I've, I've failed to thank you <laughs> like Gidon and Nada and, and Diana in the first uh, question, but now I, I have the opportunity to do so. Uh,
0: we're, we're thrilled that you're here with us and I think, did we see, um, Can were there other questions from the audience? Uh, yes, please, Miss row here.
2: Hello, uh, my name is Laila, and um,
0: you'd spoken a lot about potentially going into the West Bank and Gaza as well, in order to bring about more solutions to help them gain access to water. Um, And for some, you view it... I'm wondering what the relationship might be with the final status issue of security and how you might navigate that with this idea of security in mind, where on one hand the Israelis, they feel the need to have the soldiers there to feel safe, while the Palestinians view it as occupation. How would that go into conversation with this whole issue of water? Thank you. Thank you, and maybe I'll just tie that to another question from online, which we had a couple of people actually asking about speaking to the support or challenges between work at the civil society level here and governments and and all these stakeholders that you engage. How does this end up playing out on the ground um, amid all the sort of political and narrative difficulties that we all know exist in this conflict context?
3: We'll start.
2: Okay, I, I, I can start with the, with the first question. Um, it is a very delicate practice, and we're not naive. We're, we, don't, we don't deny that the occupation is, and the current status is not, um, is not giving us full potential to advance our work, and is not giving us the full momentum because where, whenever we, in any type of advocacy that we're doing or any type of, for example, our work on the water energy nexus, our work on the Jordan Valley, every time we try to step one step ahead, the political situation drags us back 10 steps back. Um, and it we we do some achievements on one side, and then all of a sudden, uh, there's a breakout of violence. There's a breakout of uh, a war on Gaza, and everything becomes really difficult to, to discuss and to achieve and to convince our leadership to actually sit together and make a change on the ground. And for us also as an organization, it's not as easy as it sounds because with all the great work that we're trying to do, we are still not fully 100% also accepted by our own people. We, we, we have this great recognition from international community because they understand that what we're doing is the way forward. But because of the lack of political will, because of antagonism, because of the reality on the ground, we are often condemned as being normalizers, traitors, um, I was condemned once attacked was by uh, on social media that I am implementing projects to steal water from Palestinians to sell them to <laughs> to Israeli settlements in the Jordan Valley which is completely madness. madness I'm I'm not doing that I don't want to do that what we are doing here is really to create an opportunity for everyone to really live in peace and prosperity um, uh, and and and, with, with, and, and fairly. Um, the occupation is a reality on the ground. But we are a small organization with 50 staff. We cannot solve everything. We are good at environmental peace building. We are good at pushing agendas of improving lives uh, on ground. And we are good at advocacy and speaking to you guys, so whenever we find this linkage of doing things on ground, pushing forward infrastructure and projects and cooperation with the policy level, this is what we're good at. And then this falls on you guys, think tanks like USIP, like people who are well connected to Congress, to State Department, to the Senate, to push forward the agenda of the political advancement on ground through similar work that we're doing today.
1: Can I just add to that, Lucy? Um, So Nada described the complications of our work. Um, If I was to describe how I function on a daily basis with all the challenges around us, from normalization um, to working with all the different levels and the necessity of working with the different levels, or else we will not be able to achieve. Um, Because of the realities on ground, um, the lack of sustainable development, especially in Jordan and Israel, um, uh, and Jordan and Palestine. Um, So we have to work with all the different levels. But with all these complications, we're still able to achieve and move forward. Why? Because the messages we put together always highlight the self-interest of the different groups, mm. but for us, it brings the mutual gain for all of us from the work that we're trying to do. So it will—it's a long process. It has—it's a well-planned and strategized process that we go through, but we're able to achieve with highlighting the self-interest and the mutual gain.
0: Thank you. I think we have time for one more question. Uh, did we have? We had one more question here from our audience.
5: Thank, hello. Thank you. Um, my name is Susan. Um, I really thank you, uh, the panelists today, for um, this wonderful um, and insightful uh, presentation. Um, I liked the idea that you invited people to go to, um, around, along the river to see um, what, uh, how they might be uh, contributing to the pollution of the river. However, I was wondering, have you tried, because we we were talking about uh, top down, and up, down, (laughs) and down to the top. Bottom up. Bottom up, yes. (laughs) I'm using my, yes. So uh, have you tried to invite the, especially the leadership, the higher um, leadership, the policy makers, to also go and experience this, to experience the. Palestinians living in area C have no water for so many months and they are spending so much money to buy that water and how the policies that they have uh, put in place are affecting not only, of course, not only the Palestinians, but also the Israelis. Uh, uh, I'm not sure about Jordanians, because I haven't been there, but (laughs) so (laughs) So, yes, so um, have you tried to invite them to that, just give them um, a tour, a one-week tour, while they live in those places, and see what that does?
3: Thank you. So so, so absolutely, Uh, but I think the strength of our work is that we don't have to invite The mayors that we're working with, who identify the self-interest and the lose-lose of the current situation, they're inviting the ministers, much more powerful than we as an environmental organization. We're creating constituency where middle-level decision-makers, such as Nada said, all of the mayors of the Israeli side around Gaza, called on the Israeli Prime Minister to recognize that there's not just military security here at stake, and they support the military security issues, but they want it balanced with health security and water security. And it's that engagement with all the different levels of decision-makers, with constituency building, that has brought the type of policy changes already into place They're not enough. And and to the first question, to the earlier question as well, we can't solve everything. We're not trying to solve everything. That would be a mistake. But we are trying to show that progress is possible and that those that think that we can just wait and some miracle will happen or some opportunity will come out of nowhere have their head in the sand time is against us we need to move forward on what we can move forward now the example of lebanon and israel is such a powerful example that the us administration is responsible for and should be so and is so proud of please repeat that effort let's utilize the opportunity to move forward on what is solvable immediately so that we can improve the situation on the ground, um, uh, build trust, and that's the foundation for peace building.
1: Can I just yes, add yeah, to Anna, that? Please. So very important question. I mean, um, we all spend a lot of our time in the field and taking different levels of decision makers um, um, on tours to show them things um, on ground. but. Um, I can really say that EcoPeace is a good example of um, how things should be done in our region. Because we don't only engage um, with decision makers and and, uh, people on ground and make the linkages between them. And I'm talking here all levels of decision makers. So even um, uh, Knesset members, uh, parliamentarians, we take them on tours because we aim at policy change. But we also take it a step further by piloting projects related to water, energy, food. So on the Jordanian side and the Palestinian side, we're always trying to fundraise for implementing small projects to showcase sustainable development, to showcase the nexus approach. Not only to educate people on ground in the communities, um, um, in, uh, in our country and nationwide, regionally and internationally, to also bring decision makers to see with their own eyes that the solutions we are doing are the practical, doable solutions that they need to move forward with.
0: Thank you. Nada, you might have the last word here if there's anything you, uh, you uh, wanted to add
2: on, on, uh, on this point. Um, no, actually, Gidan and Diana have covered it really well, but uh, I'd really like to thank QSIP for this opportunity and for the several set of meetings that uh, you've also prepared for us during this, uh, this week. Um, and I would just say that uh, anyone who is interested to learn more about our work, uh, please follow our newsletter on our website. Uh, spread the word, uh, when you visit the region, uh, knock our arm, uh, on our doors, uh, we would love to take you around to show you things in reality, uh, to show you our work, um, and uh, help us and support us in any way you find uh, suitable. Thank so. you, and I know I'm speaking on behalf of our audience here and online
0: to thank you for this uh, discussion today, I, I think that you know, working at USIP, devoted to uh, conflict uh, internationally, we know, right, that in a region uh, that climate can be a driver and exacerbator of existing conflict, and you certainly have. I was going to say fair share, probably unfair share of conflict uh, in, in your region, but, um, but thank you also for, for laying out those challenges today, but also for showing us and through your work, looking at how it can also be an opportunity perhaps for pushing through those challenges um, and, and finding ways to address the conflict through, to use your language, these, these uh, win-win scenarios. So thank you and thank you to our audience for joining us. Thank you. Thank you.